rifled muskets, repeating carbines, revolvers, sabers, horse pistols, and bowie knives. The Civil War saw the use of a multitude of small arms. Desperate to get the upper hand on their opponent, both sides adopted all sorts of unique, creative, and sometimes peculiar weaponry. On this episode of the Untold Civil War podcast, we're going to examine some of the most unusual weapons of the war. So prime that musket, take aim, and let's delve into some untold Civil War. Swords were the choice weapon for Roman legionnaires and English knights alike. By the time of the American Civil War, officers still carried swords on the battlefield except they carried them more as a symbol of their rank rather than a battle instrument. And although the specification for swords for foot officers is described in detail in the ordnance manuals, officers primarily purchased their own swords, and so sword designs varied as much as the backgrounds of the officers who carried them. There were a multitude of craftsmen offering their wares to the leaders of northern and southern armies. Some were stateside and some were overseas. Some had been producing blades long before the war, and some chose to address the need once the war broke out. For example, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, commander of the 54th Massachusetts of glory fame, carried a fine sword made by English sword maker Henry Wilkinson. The blade itself was beautiful, richly engraved with the United States coat of arms and his initials RGS. Others carried swords made by Tiffany's, with blades imported from Solingen then arguably the sword-producing capital of the world. In Tennessee, the Nashville Plowworks chose to beat their plowshares into swords to provide Confederate officers with blades. Kraft, Goldman, Schmidt, and Kraft of Columbia, South Carolina also produced unique blades for the Confederacy with distinct wooden scabbards that stood in stark contrast to the more common steel and leather scabbards of the day. To me, these wooden scabbards sort of exemplify the uphill battle Confederate industry faced during the Civil War. But some of the most eye-catching swords were not recent imports or only produced in response to the opening of hostilities. Instead, some swords carried were handed down from generation to generation. One of these swords is on display at the Confederate Relic Room and Military Museum in Columbia, South Carolina. This is the sword of the then state governor of South Carolina, Francis Pickens. He carried a sword whose blade is supposed to be the same blade carried by his grandfather, Andrew Pickens, the fighting elder, in the Revolutionary War. Andrew Pickens is one of the real-life leaders who inspired Mel Gibson's character, Andrew Martin, in The Patriot. Another hereditary sword was carried by Confederate Major General Joseph E. Johnson. The sword he carried was worn by his father in the Revolutionary War. However, During the Battle of Seven Pines, Johnson had been knocked from his horse by the nearby explosion of a shell. If it had not been for a young private, Johnson would have lost that treasured heirloom. A shell exploded immediately to his front, striking the general from his horse, severely wounded and unconscious. I immediately sprang forward, catching him in my arms, carried him back out of the enemy's fire. Others coming to my assistance, we moved him back about a quarter of a mile and laying him down, hastily sent for a stretcher. He regained consciousness and finding that he had lost his sword and pistol said, the sword was the one worn by my father in the old Revolutionary War. I would not lose it for $10,000. 
will not someone please go back and get it and the pistols for me? And several others and myself volunteered. On returning to the battlefield, we found our line had been considerably pressed back and the spot where General Johnson fell to be midway between the line of battle, which was blazing away in all of its fury, with men falling all around like leaves. I dashed through our line to the spot where the general had fallen, snatched up the sword and pistols, jumped upon my horse, and was making my way back to our lines when one of the pistols fell out of my hand. I quickly sprang to the ground, picked it up, when just as I did, so a discharge of grape from a battery of artillery planted within 150 yards where I was tore up the earth all around me, but I leaped on my horse and reached our lines in safety where I met one of the men who had volunteered to go back for the sword and pistols. He demanded me to turn them over to him. I said, no, I will take them to the general myself. He replied, I am your superior officer and I have the right to order you. I said, superior officer or not, you will not get this sword and these pistols unless you're a better man than I am, and I don't think you are. Private Drury L. Armstead. After the battle, Johnson presented one of the pistols to that young private as a token of his appreciation. But what happened when an officer was unable to obtain a sword in time for the big elephant? Well, Lieutenant William Lusk of the 79th New York a great regiment, by the way, that probably vies against the 69th New York for first place in my heart, wrote of this dilemma. I shall not pretend to tell you how many secessionists I killed. Between ourselves, though, in all privacy, I will confess that the fearful weapon with which I struck such terror in the hearts of the enemy was a toy wooden sword captured by one of our men from a secession boy baby. In the great battle of Manassas, holding the occasion to be one of greater moment, I made a charge armed with a ramrod, which I picked up on the way thither. During the march to Gettysburg, Lieutenant Stephen F. Brown of the 13th Vermont Infantry had been relieved of his sword for having ordered a guard to step aside and allow him to drink from a well. So like Todd, he had to improvise when it came time for the charge. He requisitioned a hatchet and led his men forward with it. He eventually captured a Confederate officer's sword during the fighting. The peculiar event is captured by the 13th Vermont Monument at Gettysburg. It depicts Lieutenant Brown holding the sword he captured with the hatchet he carried at his feet. But of course, the sword being more of a symbol than an actual battlefield implement, officers often had to rely on other means for defense. Some officers chose to march into battle equipped as their men were. Captain Felix Duffy of the 69th New York armed himself with a rifled musket. However, most officers carried a revolver. Like their swords, revolvers were private purchase, and so the models varied from officer to officer. The most popular models were produced by Colt and Remington, but there were several other unique revolvers that although in smaller number, still found their way to the battlefield. My personal favorite is the Lamat Revolver, also known as the Grapeshot Revolver. It was a beast of a sidearm. The gun's Parisian inventor, Jean-Alexander Francois Lamat, and the gun itself were described by James Morrison Morgan in his book, Recollections of a Rebel Reefer. Soon there arrived a Frenchman, a Colonel Lamat, 
the inventor of the grape-shot revolver, a horrible contraption, the cylinder of which revolved around a section of a gun barrel. The cylinder carried ten bullets. The grape-shot barrel was loaded with buckshot, which, when fired, would almost tear the arm off a man with its recoil. Lamatt's English vocabulary was limited, and his only subject of conversation was his invention. So he used it to explain to the young ladies how the infernal machine worked. Now that sounds very easy, but one must remember that Lamatt was a highly imaginative gull, and insisted on posing me to illustrate his lecture. This was embarrassing, especially as he considered it polite to begin all over again as each new guest entered the room. Despite its powerful recoil and hefty weight of about 3 pounds, keep in mind the weight of today's Glock 19 is about 23 ounces, the 42 caliber Lamatt revolver was a popular choice for several Confederate officers. Among those known to carry the revolver were General Jeb E. Stewart, Commandant of Andersonville Henry Wirtz, John Henry Lawson Lewis, and PGT Beauregard. Beauregard was actually Lamatt's cousin by marriage and owned 25% of the Lamatt Manufacturing Company. He was instrumental in marketing the firearm to the U.S. Army before the war and then the Confederacy during the hostilities. Confederate Cavalry Commander General Jeb Stewart was said to have been wielding his Lamatt revolver when he was killed at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. Cavalrymen of the Confederacy, like their flamboyant leader, carried a wide array of interesting weaponry. The Boulevard Troop of the 1st Mississippi Cavalry carried Maynard carbines. Men of the 1st Arkansas Mounted Rifles were issued Hall Rifles, and many Texas Cavalrymen wielded shotguns. But there were a few units of Texas Cavalry who chose to ride into battle differently. Three companies of General Henry Hopkins Sibley's Brigade chose to do battle with the Lance, the weapon of choice for the Cossack and Comanche. Now, the Lance played a prominent role in the Napoleonic Wars, but was seemingly out of place on the battlefield of the American Civil War. But then again, Sibley's peculiar adventure into New Mexico was not typical of the campaigns of this war. Sibley had devised a plan, approved by Richmond, to raise a brigade in Texas to occupy New Mexico, capture the rich mines of the Colorado Territory, and take over the seaports of Los Angeles and San Diego. This way, the Confederacy would get the gold they needed to fund this war and since the Yankees had already blockaded the East Coast, they would open up a new coast with which they could continue trading with foreign nations. Ultimately, however, the plan was to show the world that the Confederacy was far from an embryotic state and instead was a powerhouse on the American continent. Foreign recognition would no doubt soon follow after the Confederacy carved an empire out of the Southwest. It was an unusual plan. Everything about it was wild. The westernmost campaign of the war would be a mad chance at empire on the barren, unforgiving deserts of the southwestern territories. It was sort of a deep dive into Lewis Carroll's wonderland. And it's not surprising that such a campaign would set the scene for the great Clint Eastwood Western, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. With this background information, it is now not so surprising that Lance's, as stated before, being an oddity on any Civil War battlefield in the East, would make a grand showing here during this bizarre campaign. Sibley would ultimately arm three companies of cavalry with lances. One of those companies would turn in their lances for firearms, but two companies, B and G of the 5th Texas Mounted Volunteers, chose to keep them and they would become the pride of the brigade. 
These lances, castaways from the Mexican-American War, were about 16 feet long with 10-inch steel spars on the ends. The day to use these dastardly-looking weapons would come when Sibley had advanced into New Mexico territory and came face-to-face -face with Colonel Edward Canby's Union forces on the banks of the Rio Grande. The forces would collide at the Valverde Ford after the Confederates had endured a long winter march. Many of the Confederates were hatless, shoeless, and desperate for water. But the Yankees had control of the river, and so they would have to fight for it. The Lancer Company B, led by Captain Lang, attempted to turn the tide of the battle by charging the Yankees at full tilt. A Union private explained the situation from his side. The enemy knew by the dress and movements of our company that we were not regulars, and they thought us Mexicans. They then thought they had a soft snap. Three companies of mounted Lancia Rangers made a charge on our company, which was but 71 strong in the field. The boys waited until they got within 40 yards of us when they took deliberate aim, and it was fun to see the Texans fall. They wavered for a few moments, and then they came. And fierce-looking fellows they were with their long lances raised. But when they got to us, we were loaded again. And then we gave them the bucking ball. After the volley, there were but few of them left, and but one of them got away. The others were shot, one bayoneted. G. Simpson ran his bayonet through one, and then shot the top of his head off. Private Alonzo Fernandez Ickes, 2nd Colorado Volunteers. Lucky for Company G, they were at the last minute ordered not to charge and did not share the same fate as Company B. After this, the surviving Lancers discarded their hog pokers and picked up whatever firearms they could acquire. The campaign itself was a disaster, and Sibley was forced to retreat with Yankees on his heels. Had he been successful, the campaign may not have so easily fallen into the realm of untold civil war but it was a pleasure sharing this story on this episode. Finally, the last unusual weapon I'd like to talk about is the ever-so-simple and reliable rock. The Civil War is often described as the first modern war. We talked about this in our episode with author Cody Engel, and so I won't go too in-depth with that. But essentially, in this war, we see World War I-style trenches. We have repeating arms, aerial intelligence gatherings, ironclads, and submarines. But as every infantryman knows, even those serving today, the last hundred yards between combatants is an infantryman's fight. The last hundred yards is where the artillery, air support, or naval support cannot reach. The last hundred yards is a man-to-man, knife-to-hatchet, eyeball-to-eyeball fight. In that fight, the infantryman resorts to whatever tools he must to get the job done. And so, even in the Civil War, we see men using rocks as their Stone Age warrior ancestors did. General Robert E. Lee, confident of his success during the Peninsula Campaign of 1862, moved to threaten Washington. Approximately 30 miles from Washington City at Manassas, General Stonewall Jackson, Lee's right-hand man, would take up a defensive position along an unfinished railroad grade. On the 29th of August, Pope launched several assaults on the position, which were only repulsed due to the sheer tenacity of Jackson's men. At one point, with ammunition dwindling, Michael O'Keefe yelled to his fellow Confederates, Boys, give them rocks! 
This Neanderthal type of warfare continued until ammunition arrived and the Confederates seized the day. So as you can see, from the highly scientific to the most rudimentary of weapons, those who lived through the Civil War saw what wonders man could invent when inspired to kill one another. Here were only a few of the odd weapons used during the conflict. Please be sure to share your favorites in the comments section on Instagram, YouTube, or Facebook. I do hope you enjoyed that episode while you waited for your clothes at the laundromat, charging rebels with saber drawn along Custer, chain-smoking cigars with Ulysses S. Grant, or whenever you listen to our episodes. Big shout-out to Craig Duncan for the music, and please go ahead and support the show by downloading the Gettysburg and Nation Divided app with the code Untold Civil War, no spaces. Why wouldn't you want to learn about the Civil War in augmented reality? And finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, leave a review on iTunes, keep reading, and spreading untold Civil War. Thank you. <laughs>